The book of Colossians is all about Jesus. He is unapologetically the focus of just about every verse and every word all throughout the book of Colossians. And not only who he is and what he's done, but how that impacts us, not only now, but also what is to come. And we've been in a sermon series titled Jesus First as we go through the book of Colossians. And two weeks ago when I preached, we were looking at Colossians 2 verses 11 through 15, that paragraph, but we really just focused on one verse. We really focused on verse 14. So what I want to do today is to go back to that passage and really look at that paragraph as a whole, Colossians 2, 11 through 15, and see how that fits together, what it means for us, but specifically how Christ's sacrifice is completed, it is done, how that is sufficient for us, and how the price paid for our victory is complete, and therefore there's nothing that will be added to it, but we have an opportunity to take this completed work, this completed victory on our behalf, and to walk in it. So I've titled the sermon, Done, Part 2, because we're really following up on what I preached two weeks ago as we looked at this passage already once. There's so much here. I even thought, man, I could spend a third week next week as I was preparing. Uh, there's just so much in these few verses. But let's pick up at verse 11, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And we saw last week how what Paul is saying is that all that we have pertaining to everlasting life and the blessings of God, it's all wrapped up in him. That's so key. In him, verse 11, these things are true of us. So you take away Jesus, none of these things are true of us. That's why he is the centerpiece. That's why he is to be first. It's all about him. In him, we have all these things. And specifically, verse 11, he's saying that Jesus was cut off on our behalf for our sins that we might have life. That's what verse 11 is saying. And so, in other words, apart from Jesus, apart from his death, apart from him being cut off, we don't have the life in God that we do have through him. And I know that seems so elementary, but we need to continually be reminded of the fact that if Jesus was not cut off in my place for my sins, I would not have everlasting life. And so therefore, I must continually come back to him because that life is not just a one-time thing. It's not just walking out. It's not just saying one prayer. It's day by day, moment by moment, every breath that I take, my life is found in him. So Paul is saying, in him you have this. Then verse 12, he says, buried with him in baptism, which you also were raised with him. See this connection with Christ, our identity with Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. We're going to see today that faith, through faith, that is such a key to all that we're going to talk about today. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses. Now what can a dead person do? Nothing. That's why we can't save ourselves. Because our spiritual state apart from Christ is dead. <laughs> Death. We are dead before God in our sins. 
We need an intervention. We need to be rescued. And that's what Jesus has done. He has come and he has rescued dead people. And he has made us alive. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you're talking about the sin that is upon us, he has made alive together with him. So there's a third with him in verses 12 and 13. We've been buried with him, we've been raised with him, and here he's made us alive together with him. See, it's linked to Jesus. You take away Jesus, then these things fall apart. They're not true. Having forgiven you, Look at this little word here, so important. All trespasses. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, God's forgiveness works different than ours. We talk about forgiving and, and forgetting. God, who is omniscient, who knows all things, it's not that God can forget in the sense that it's no longer there in what we would call our memory. But for God to forgive means God will never bring it up again against you. Isn't that amazing? That God sees our sin, that God, when we put our faith in Jesus, sees us now in Christ, that our sins have been dealt with, and so God makes the choice to never bring it up again in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you really want to hurt your brain, think about this. He's forgiven all of our sins. Does that mean the sins that I'll commit tomorrow? Yeah, they're already forgiven. The sins a year from now? Yeah, they're already forgiven. Well, how does that work? I don't know. They just are. Because God's Word says that they are. So that's what it is. Now, again, let me press this a little bit further. Are we to confess our sins? Yeah, 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confession is essentially just agreeing with God with what he's already said is true, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I've done wrong, and I confess it, I come clean, I repent, and I turn from it. But Christ does not die again. He's not providing another forgiveness again. Forgiveness is already done. It's settled. It's a done deal. He's forgiven me all my sins. See, don't think too long on that. You'll hurt yourself. I'm telling you. But what that means is that tomorrow or the next day or whatever, when I fail to do the good I should or I don't do the good that I know I should, I go against God and I just do wrong. He's forgiven me all my sin. You know what that does? It doesn't drive you, Paul talks about this extensively in the book of Romans. It doesn't drive us to have this, well, let me see what I can get away with mentality. It drives me to realize in view of the great love of God, wow, I want to be quick to repent and turn of my sin and to press into his goodness more and more and more. He has forgiven, what a powerful statement, having forgiven you all trespasses. That's another word for sin. That is an amazing statement. Now, as we look at verses 12 and 13 together, we see three things where we're identified with Christ. Again, we start thinking on this too hard, you're going to hurt yourself, but God's Word says it, so it must be true. So that's what we're going to go with. There are three terms that are together that we really need to accept and receive into ourselves and begin to live from. In Greek, they have things that where there are prefix, prefixes, when they're added onto a word, it can change the word's meaning uh, quite a bit. In fact, in Romans, where it talks about uh, the Spirit uttering without speech, 
the word that is translated there without speech is the word for speech with the prefix ah on front of it. So just that little prefix ah put on the front, it means without. So it negates whatever the verb is. So the verb normally means with speech, but with the prefix ah, it's now without speech. See what I mean? The prefix, it changes it. Here in verses 12 and 13 of Colossians 2, there is the prefix soon on three different things we just looked at. Soon has the idea of together, with, we are joined. And it, it really emphasizes something in the Greek that we lose a little bit in the, the English. It says buried with him, soon with him, raised with him, soon and then verse 13, made alive together with him soon. And the emphasis is on the fact that what happened to Jesus has happened to us. That what Christ has done, he has also done for us. And somehow, we were together with him in that. You could translate it very literally as that we were co-buried, we were co-raised, and we were made co-alive with Jesus. That's the point of emphasis, that what Christ did, we have done, and where Christ has overcome, we have overcome. It's very much in the Greek, very unapologetically saying that as Christ died, you died. As Christ was raised, you were raised. And as Christ is alive, now you are alive. But how did that happen? I wasn't, was I, I wasn't in the grave with Jesus. God says I died with him. God says I was made alive with him. That says, I was raised with them. So there must be something to that. Look with me at Romans 6. I know that we read it, read it in the scripture reading, and it was in your growth guide a few weeks ago, but repetition is good. R Romans chapter 6. I want you to look at verses 1 through 14 with me. I promise I'm going somewhere. We're going to get there soon. I want you to look at all the ways that we are identified with Jesus. Okay? So you have Colossians 12 and 13 in your mind, uh, 2 verses 12 and 13 in your mind. Now look at all the ways we're identified with Jesus. There's got to be something to this. Look at this. Look at Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, that's what I was talking about. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? See, when you really understand the grace and the love of God, it's not a blank check to sin. It actually leads you to righteousness and holiness. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were baptized, we were buried with him. Through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So I died with Christ, I was raised with Christ, I have a new life in Christ. There it is again. See, if, if the Bible's repeating it this much, there must be something to it. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, there it is again. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. There it is again. What's going on here? I don't remember dying with Jesus. Do you remember that? Were you there? Do you remember that? The Bible's saying that we did. And that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died, here's the key, has been freed from sin. It's through our death that we're made free. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe, there it is, faith. See, it's key. 
that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Look at this. Verse, four, verse 11 is so key. The, the word reckon here. I don't know if this is the new southern translation or what. Reckon yourself. But here it is, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves. That's a good southern word, right? I reckon. It would be like I'm a fixing to, right? Uh, I, I reckon right here. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to come back to that verse. You have to get this verse. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. See, there's the application. Because you've died, because you've raised, you're different, so therefore sin should not have dominion over you. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Go back to verse 11. Likewise, also you reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the word that we translate as reckon, it is actually a mathematical term. Coach Hefner, uh, Coach Taylor, this is a math term for you here. Reckon, it actually is. It has to do with mathematical equations, and it is in the imperative. So Paul's actually commanding us to do math. It's my least favorite verse in the whole Scripture. I hate math. Now, he is commanding us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Because if we do that, it changes the way we live. So again, there must be something to that. So how do I do that? Well, here's how I do it. Two plus two is four, right? I didn't blow anybody's brains by, by saying that, did I? I mean, I, you were like, wow, I never knew two plus two is four. You know that. That's established truth, right? Two plus two is four. If you pull out a calculator and you put two plus two equals, it's going to come up what? Four. You're never going to go, well, let me see what it does this time, right? It's not something, you know that two plus two equals four. If somebody came up to you and said, did you know that two plus two is five now? You'd go, would you please go stand over there and quit talking to me, right? We know that two plus two is four. That is truth. That is reality. It is established. It is accepted. We know. You can try to deny it. You can try to say two plus two isn't four anymore, but it still remains true. If that's the case, if we understand that simple mathematical principle, then when Paul says, do this math, reckon yourselves dead to sin but alive to God, if we can understand and we will mark it down that 2 plus 2 is 4, then how much more should we take God's math where God says, you have died to sin, you have been made alive to Christ, therefore live this way. That's God's math. And if we will believe that two plus two is four, when God says this is who you are, you've died and you've raised, and now who's who, here's who you are, how much more should we accept that reality? You see, I can say, yeah, I died with Jesus just because God told me I did, and that's enough. You get me? I reckon it so because God has told me that's what it is. But now I need to really accept it and take it in because if you really look at that passage, 
in Romans 6 and Colossians 2, what they're saying is you have to see yourself as dead to sin. You have to do that math. You have to mark it down. That is your truth. That is your reality. So that now you can truly live for God. Many of us have not gotten to that point of, of reckoning, of saying, now I'm, I'm done with that. We've not quite gotten there. But God says, yes, you are. God actually sees us that way. Brings us to our first point this morning. Through faith, what happened to Jesus happened to us and will happen to us. You see, it's all about faith. If God has said that I have died to sin, that I died with Christ, that I've been made alive with Christ, and and that there's even more to come, then that's what's going to happen. I have died with Jesus to sin. So now I have new life. You know, uh, championship teams, whether it's baseball or basketball or football or soccer, whatever, team sports, if they achieve at the highest level and they go through the playoffs and they win and they're national or world champions or, or whatever, when they win, what do they get to signify their championship? A lot of times they'll get a trophy, right, obviously, but they also get rings. Each member on that team gets a ring that says they are a champion. They've won. Right? Now, we get that, all the players. Let's take a basketball team, for example. They all, all the players get rings. The coach also gets a ring. What if the coach never even played basketball? He's just always been a coach. Well, he still was on the court. He was calling plays, and he gets a ring. But he didn't play. See, the players play. The coach, well, he coached, but he gets a ring. What if, what if you didn't play a single game through the season and you rode the bench the whole time? Do you still get a ring? Yeah, you do, because you're identified with the team. You're on the team. What about the owner? This is the funniest thing to me. Most of the time, NBA owners never played basketball. They're usually wealthy businessmen that have bought a team, right, for an investment. Now, what do you want to be if you're going to be an NBA basketball player? You want to be between about 6'2 and 7'2. You want to be tall, right? And you want to be very athletic, and you want to be young. I mean, in the basketball world, when you get to be about 30, you're, you're old. You're a veteran, right, when you're 30. So you want to be in your 20s, you want to be over six foot tall, and you want to be extremely athletic. What's funny is a lot of those owners are about 5'7", 5'8", and 250 pounds. And if they try to run from one end of the court to the other, they're not going to make it very good. And so you look at them and you go, he's probably never even played a game of basketball in his life. Why is he getting a ring? Why does the owner get a ring? He may have not even held a basketball. He just bought the team as an investment. Why does he get a ring? Well, again, because he's part of the team as the owner. Now, if we understand that, if we understand that, you know, the water boy is a part of the team, we understand that the guy that rode the the bench all season, he's a part of the team, and the coach is part of the team, and the owner is a part of the team. If we understand these basic principles, oh, hey, we're all a part of the team. We really need to grasp the fact that God's telling us, hey, reckon yourselves as on my team. And as a part of my team, you really died with Jesus. You, you're identified with his death. And you really are identified with his life because you're on my team. And you really have more to come because you are identified with Jesus. And that's the amazing part is that there's still more to come. Jesus not only died and rose, but he's going to come back one day. And so right now, while I've died with him, while I've been raised with him, while my sins are forgiven in him, I'm still awaiting my resurrected body. That's something to look forward to. There's still more to come. 
So through faith, what happened to Jesus happened to us. I've been freed from sin through Jesus. And I still have more to look forward to. Through faith, what happened to Jesus happened to us and will happen to us. But let's go on to Colossians 2.14 and we get to the second point pretty quickly here. There was a lot of groundwork and we're going to move a little faster now. Look at verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We spent a lot of time on this two weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor it, but how do we know what sin is? Well, we know because God's spoken. God has said things like don't steal. And he's told us positive commands like love your neighbor. So that means if I steal, if I do something that I know that I shouldn't, that's a sin. Or if I fail to do the good I should, like I don't love my neighbor, that's a sin as well. And what happens is I sin and the law stands there convicting me of my sin. You understand? The imagery, the law is a witness testifying against me constantly, declaring me guilty constantly. I can't ever keep God's standards of holiness. I can't do it. And so this witness is just constantly against me. The weight of guilt is constantly upon me. And then steps in Jesus. And Jesus on the cross takes all of my guilt he takes all of my shame. He takes all of my sin. All that the law is decrying against me, Jesus takes, he steps in my place. He dies the death that I should die. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, now I, because the price has been paid, can be free from sin. That's why verse 14 says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, the good that I should have done that is witnessing against me, he's paid for it. So he's removed that condemnation from me. It was contrary to us, but Jesus has dealt with it. And how has he dealt with it? He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Understanding that this was the only way my sin would, could have been dealt with. It had to be dealt with through a substitute. See, my hands were already dirty. I couldn't clean myself up. I needed someone to step in and clean me up. And what I must understand is apart from the cross, I really have no hope. But in the cross, I have all the hope that I need because Christ has done it for me. And that brings us to our second point. Faith in Jesus is where my hope must reside. It must reside in him. It cannot be in myself or in this world. Faith in Jesus is where my hope must reside. Now, let me tell you this. Our flesh doesn't like that. Our flesh wants to contribute to our own hope because then we can say we've done something. See, that's the pride of life. We don't want all of our hope to rest in Jesus because then that means that we don't have anything to boast about. God is saying, look, my son will never fail you. We'll fail ourselves. We'll fail one another, even if we don't want to. But Jesus will never fail us. And our hope must completely reside in him. See, this passage, as well as much as scripture, it's all about what Jesus has done for us. And why did he do it for us? 
because we needed him to. And again, that just goes against the grain of our human pride. Uh, I think if I'm just a little bit better, God will accept me. Nope. You're dead in your sin. You have no hope. But Jesus stepped in and he died for our sins and he is all the hope that we need and we can set our hope fully upon him and in doing that, we will not be disappointed. So then here's the follow-up question. Is there an area of your life where you've lost hope? Is there an area of life where you've just given up, where you don't see a way forward, where you've just given in? There's an area of your life where you have lost hope that is most likely the evidence that there is some area of your life where you have a Savior besides Jesus. If there is some area of your life where you have lost hope, you have given up, you see no way forward, that is most likely the evidence pointing to you have some other Savior than Jesus. Jesus does not disappoint Jesus does not let you down. Jesus does not give up on you. There is never a moment when Jesus is unfaithful, unloving, unkind. There is never a moment when Jesus is acting contrary to your good. He is working, in fact, in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so when we have these areas where I don't know what to do with that anymore and I've lost hope and I'm in despair, Maybe that's the very area that God's trying to deal with to bring you back to placing your hope fully upon Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you a little bit better what I mean. All my life, we, I've had dogs, and they've usually been big dogs. When I was little, we had a golden retriever. Then I had a boxer, and we had a shepherd. And now I have a lap dog. Uh, about four years ago, we got a little nine-pound fur ball named Leah. Uh, for my kids, they love Leia. And uh, so yeah, I felt like I kind of had to turn in my, my man card and receive my lap dog and even exchange there. And she's a sweet little dog. And Leia knows that I, I feed her and I water, I give her water and I take her out on walks and I take care of her, right? So when Leia sees me, she likes seeing me because she, you know, food, water. He's gonna take me outside. And so Leah knows that I take care of her. Now, when we take Leah and we put her in a bathtub, she hates the water. And that little nine-pound fur ball, when you get her wet, looks like a drowned rat. And so you put her in the bath and you dump her with water. And what does she do? You have a little drowned rat looking up at you going, why are you doing this to me? She doesn't understand. She doesn't understand why I've taken her out of, you know, napping on the couch to in this big tub of water that she can't get out, and I'm just dumping water in her face. She's looking at me going, why are you doing this? I thought you loved me. And then once a year, I take her to the Animal Protection League, and you know what they do? They stab needles in her. They give her shots, and I'm holding her down. I hold her down while people that she does not know stab her. And she looks at me, and she goes, why are you doing this to me? Why am I doing that? Well, I bathe her because if we don't, she'll get diseases on her skin 
and she could get infections in her skin, and her hair gets all matted, and it's bad for her if she does not have a bath. Why do I take her to get shots? Because she needs to be protected from certain diseases that dogs can get. So I am actually acting in love when I put her in that bath. Even though she is looking at me saying, why are you doing this? It's for your good. When I drive her to the Animal Protection League and she's scared and she gets out, she, she's been there four years now, she knows something bad's coming, and she's shaking and I take her in and I hold her down and she looks at why are you doing this to me? It's for your good. It's for your good. God says that his ways are above our ways. As the heavens are above the earth, his ways are above our ways. He says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. You can't even begin to comprehend what I'm doing. Now, how foolish of us is it to go, God, what are you doing? I thought you loved me. You see, often the very things that we really don't like in our lives are what God is saying, look, you really, really need this. Because God loves us, we can have that hope. See, if you take God's love out of the equation, that doesn't work. But because God loves us, because you are the object of God's love, because Christ has died for you, because you have died with Christ, because you have been made alive with Christ, because you've been raised with Christ, because God looks at you and he sees you as a child who he loves, who is a co-heir with Christ, because God sees you as one who is forgiven, and because God chooses to never bring it up again, then I can have hope that Jesus will see me through, that whatever's going on in my life is filtered through the love of God, that God is good for me, and that it is foolish of me to put my hope in any other Savior than Jesus Christ. And I can hope in Him, and I can know that what God is doing is good. Faith in Jesus is where my hope must reside. It can't be in myself or this world. Now, let's look at our last verse, Colossians 2.15. Man, I've got to hurry. I should have just made a whole other sermon out of this. Uh, this is the good stuff I've really been building up to. Uh, now, now we've got we to move here. This is, in my opinion, one of the most potent verses in all of Scripture regarding spiritual warfare. Satan hates this verse to be read because it is his defeat in black and white. Look at this verse having disarmed principalities and powers. Now, when you see principalities and powers, it's speaking of the spiritual heavenly forces, Satan and the demons that follow him, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made, that's Jesus made, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Man, what a powerful verse. Jesus has disarmed Satan. He's made a public spectacle of Satan. He has triumphed over Satan, and he wants everybody to know about it. Wow, that's good stuff. Let me just read that verse one more time. I like reading it. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That is the cross. Now let's break these three things down, and then I'll bring it to a close with the final point. 
What does it mean that he's disarmed the principalities and powers? Well, very simple. Here's what it is. Jesus, through the cross, took Satan's strongest card out of his deck. See, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So God has spoken. We know God's word. We sin. And then Satan comes in and goes, look what you just did. I can't believe you did that. In fact, Satan, he does not play fair. We must understand we have an enemy. Satan tempts us to sin. Then when we do sin, he goes, man, you are a miserable person. I can't believe you did that. But you know what Jesus has done through the cross? He has disarmed. He has taken Satan's power from him. Look, Satan didn't just hand over his power. That's a violent encounter to go and take somebody's power from him, especially your enemy. The cross was a violent encounter. Jesus went to a cross, and on the cross, he disarmed Satan. Here's how it happened. Satan is accusing us. Look what they've done. Look what they've done. Look what you've done. Look at what you have done. He's accusing us to ourselves. He's accusing us before the Father. And then Jesus steps in, and on the cross, Jesus dies. And Jesus says, yes, God, look at all that they have done, and I'm paying for it. And Jesus pays for it on the cross so that now when Satan says, look what you've done, Jesus goes, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. No, that's paid for. Satan goes before the Father. Father, let me tell you about what your child has done. Jesus says, no, 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 object. It's covered. It's paid for. You see, Jesus through the cross has taken Satan's power from him in a violent death. That Jesus died on my behalf. He has broken Satan's power. Now, I can give Satan power. And unfortunately, that's what many people do. We don't heed God's word. We don't listen to God's word. We don't walk in God's spirit. And so we allow the lies of the enemy to take hold in our life. We allow a defeated foe to work us over. How foolish is that? But as we come back to Jesus, we find all the power that we need because he has defeated our foe. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Second thing, look, he made a public spectacle of them. I love this. Man, Jesus is not just some tame, you know, long-haired hippie that we see in pictures where he's sitting there with a nice smile. He is a warrior king, man. He has defeated his enemies. And you know what he did when he defeated his enemies? He made a spectacle of them. That's not something some passive peacekeeping beatneck does. That's a warrior king right there. He not only defeated Satan, he made sure everybody knew it. Man, that's power. You know what it means that he made a public spectacle of them? That was called, and in, in we, we don't understand this now, in Roman times, that was called a Roman triumph. When an army from Rome went out from Rome and invaded another country and defeated that other country, here's what they did. They took the king, the nobility, and the best treasures, and as they brought it back to Rome, there was a parade thrown for the conquering army. And they paraded, they made a public spectacle of the army that they had defeated, of the king they had defeated, and they paraded them through Rome in a spectacle as a way of Rome showing their superiority, saying, look who we have defeated. Look at the treasures we have gained. Look at what we have done. Look at the might of Rome. And that is what Jesus did through the cross. 
is he defeated Satan, taking his power from him, but he also made a public spectacle of him. Jesus let all of the demons of hell, all of the hosts of heaven, and all of this world know, I am king and I have defeated my foe. And guess what? He's defeated your foe. You share it with him. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them. And then lastly, I'm wrapping it up, triumphing over them in it. Wow. (laughs) That's what our God does. And I love it because that keeps us humble and it keeps us dependent on him. What he does is he takes what makes no sense to us and that's what he works through. And that was the cross. It made no sense for God to die on a cross. It made no sense for victory to come through a cross. It made no sense for the Son of God to take on flesh, to be mistreated and misunderstood by his own creation, and nailed and hung between heaven and earth. The Bible even says that to the world, to the unbelieving, it's foolishness. And it is, apart from faith. It makes no sense. But our God is the God that makes streams in the wilderness. See? Our God is that makes the dead come alive. Our God is the one who takes those who have no hope and brings them hope. Our God is who takes a people who are not a people and makes them citizens of his own household. See, that's what our God does. And so what was happening is that on the cross, as Jesus is dying, Satan thought he was triumphing. But as Jesus died and the penalty for our sins was paid for, the victory was won. And it's in the cross. And if you get nothing else, please understand, I keep driving us back to the cross because that's what the passage is about. If you're living your life apart from the cross of Christ, you're not living in victory. Because the victory that God has provided for his children is in the cross. That's where it's at. That brings us to our third and final point. Faith allows us to go the way of the cross knowing it's the way of life. Look, we don't want to go the way of the cross. I mean, we don't like things that hurt, that cause us to die to self, to lay down our pride. We don't like that. So we don't want to do that. That's hard. I don't want to suffer. Let's talk to them about all the good stuff. All right? I guess I'm the only person here that does that. You know, I guess I'm all alone in that. We don't like that. We don't like, we don't like the thought of dying to self, being humble. But see, when I understand really what happened on the cross and what Jesus did through the cross, and what it means in my life, then by faith, I can go to the cross knowing, hey, God has victory for me in death. God has victory for me in death. I want to close with what Jesus said in John chapter 12. Very interesting passage. It's in your growth guide this week. John 12, verses 31 through 33. Jesus is looking towards his death. And in verse 31, uh, he's saying that now is the judgment of this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. In other words, the ruler, little r, ruler, Satan of this world, I'm going to take his power from him, is what Jesus was saying. Now is the judgment of the world, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, how's that going to happen? Then he says in verse 32, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Oh, okay, so... The ruler of this world is cast out. The judgment of this world happens as Jesus is lifted up. What does that mean? Because you hear a lot of people, especially worship leaders I've heard over the year, we're going to lift Jesus up and people will be drawn to him. 
well, okay, yes, we want to exalt Jesus, and people will be drawn to him, but verse 33 clarifies what that verse means. Verse 33 says, he said this signifying by what death he would die. When Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw people to myself, what he's saying is, if I am stripped naked, beaten, nailed to a cross, and suspended between heaven and earth, I will draw people to myself. That's what he means by being lifted up. He was beaten with his hands and his feet, hammered to a cross, and that cross was lifted up, and it thudded into the ground, and the nail holes tore at his skin and his bones. And it was through his violent death, his resurrection, through who he is and what he has done, that he draws us to himself. This morning, as we bring our service to a close, we're going to go into a time of observing the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who are children of God. And hopefully you have followed through and been baptized. Uh, if you're a part of another church and you're just visiting with us today, but you're a believer of Jesus, you can take the Lord's Supper with us. The qualification is that you're a believer in Christ. I would encourage you, if you've not yet been baptized, that you really need to think hard about that. Why would I say I'm following Jesus, but I haven't been baptized? But again, if you're a believer in Jesus, you, you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. But we see in the scriptures that we're to examine ourselves before we come to his table. Because here's the thing, it is his table. Jesus is king. He has died for us, and he welcomes us to commune with him. We're... We've co-died, we've co-raised, we've been co-made alive. And as we come to his table, it's his table, and we want to make sure that we're coming to him in a way that is pleasing to him. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Aaron if he would come up, and we're going to play a little bit in the background. And I'm going to have a moment uh, to just kneel and pray, kind of like we did earlier in the service. And I want to give you an opportunity. And I know there are kids in here. And so it's, for some of us, it's going to be easier said than done. But I want to just take a minute to quiet our hearts, to prepare our hearts. And then I'll lead us. It will just take a few moments as we observe the Lord's Supper. But can we take just a minute now to examine our hearts, to come before God and say, Lord, you've died for me. You've done it in my place. Help me through you to, to come to your table today in a way that's pleasing to you. Will you please join me in a time of prayer? Jesus, I thank you that you have died and that I died with you and that I've been raised with you and that I have been made alive with you. And as I take this bread and as I drink this cup, I'm reminded that your body was broken in my place for my sin. And I'm reminded that your blood was shed in my place for my sin. 
and that any hope that I have, any life that I have, any good in me is because of you. And I can give you thanks for that. And I can rest my hope in you. And I can trust you. And so, Lord, we by faith will take these elements remembering your death in our place for our sins. Your death that also brought life and victory to all who believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.